Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Battle of the Teutoburg Forest of AD 9, Part 2 of 2. Last week I described the build-up to the battle. By AD 6, Rome's conquest of Germania, at least in the west, was progressing well, despite heavy resistance from local tribes and the shedding of much blood. But in that year, attention was diverted by a major rebellion which broke out in Illyria in the Balkans. Tiberius, Augustus's stepson and future emperor, was sent with eight legions to quell the revolt. It was thought in Rome that this region had already been pacified. Instead, it took four years of intense fighting to regain authority there, in a war described by the Roman historian Suetonius as the most difficult conflict faced by Rome since the Punic Wars. During this period in Germania, Rome left three of its legions, the 17th, 18th and 19th, numbering about 10,000 elite troops, led by the experienced 55-year-old commander Publius Quintilius Varus. The sources are mostly very unflattering of Varus. According to Paterculus, he was, quote, a man of mild character and of a quiet disposition, somewhat slow in mind as he was in body, more accustomed to the leisure of camp than to actual service in war, end quote. However, before his assignment to Germany, this personal friend of Emperor Augustus had enjoyed an illustrious and successful career, in his previous positions as governor of Africa and then Syria, he had proved himself as both a capable military commander and administrator. In Germania, with new towns being founded, altars being dedicated, and massive building programmes underway, Varus appeared to have the ideal experience, as well as loyalty to Augustus, to complete the integration of this land. When he began the project, it was already well on track. The previous commander, Gaius Saturnius had performed his duties well, stamping down hard on any revolts, but never with undue cruelty. The region was being secured militarily, and the organisation of local tax collection underway. The three legions had an excellent reputation, proud to have never lost a battle. On their shields was depicted a thunderbolt, the weapon of Jupiter, the chief god of the Romans. They carried with them an eagle made of gold on a pole as a revered symbol of each legion. Unlike the professional armies of Rome, the German soldiers were mostly farmers, raised together into an army when needed. According to the historian Ian Hughes, the military organisation went something like as follows. 
One local tribal leader usually owned loyalty and services of a cluster of farms and villages, together what was known as a canton. The number of men that each canton could raise would vary, but averaged around a thousand, and at most was about two thousand. Each leader would have a small retinue to serve him in military matters. In theory, the leader of each canton would have a political alliance with a more powerful leader, and was more likely to have dominated several such cantons. In turn, many of these leaders would serve a yet more powerful individual. It is likely that as contact with Rome grew, such groupings became larger in an effort to unite against the common foe. However, alliances often shifted, and many tribes decided they would be better off allying with the Romans rather than fight against them. One such tribe were the Cherusci. Their leader was Arminius, who had fought for Rome in a revolt in Illyria and impressed so much that he had been promoted to equestrian officer status, the first German known to achieve this rank. The only description we have of Arminius is a brief one from Paterculus, who describes him as a young man of noble birth, brave, alert and intelligent. After his service in Illyria, the Romans transferred Arminius back to his homeland, perhaps to act as an intermediary with the locals. Bear in mind, it was very common for the Romans to use native troops such as the Tarisci. Indeed, they did so throughout the empire. Historians use the term auxiliary units to describe those allied with Rome, but not integrated enough to think of themselves as Romans. Varus's entire army was very sizeable. Not only the legions themselves and the auxiliaries, but a large number of support personnel. The whole group included hundreds of two- and four-wheel carts, pulled along by mules carrying all the baggage, as well as provisions, spare clothing and weapons, cooking utensils, axes to help cut through the vegetation, and equipment to build campsites. They also carried amphorae filled with wine, olives, oil, asparagus, nuts and spices, and on top of that, fine jewellery as gifts for tribal leaders. When the whole force set up camp, it was far larger than any German settlement in the region. In August AD 9, Varus closed his summer camp, thought to be at the location of today's town of Minden on the river Weser. He had spent the summer not on fighting but on the setting up of governmental infrastructure, day-to-day diplomacy, or the various jobs required with a new province. There had been no sign of trouble all summer, and the governor had little reason to expect any now. He now decided to lead his forces westwards, back to his winter quarters beyond the Rhine. First, the German allies, including the Cherusci, were sent back to their villages, although Arminius stayed with his commander. Then, just as they were about to set off, Arminius reported to Varus that several small tribes had just rebelled against Rome, nearby to the northwest and advised him to put down this rebellion on his way back to the Rhine, assuring him it would be a simple task. Another Cheruscan nobleman, Segestes, warned Varus this was a trick, but Varus dismissed his warning, believing Segestes was only saying this because of a personal feud he had with his fellow German. It would prove to be a costly mistake. Arminius advised Varus the best route to take before leaving, saying he would collect together a group of Germanic forces to support the Roman campaign. Instead, however, after he left he met up with his troops, who must have been waiting in the vicinity, and prepared to ambush the Roman garrisons, in what would be later known as the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest.
At this point, we can only be sure of the involvement of three tribes. The Taruskai of Armenia, together with the Birukturi and a small tribe called the Marsi. The legions were tired after spending a day of heavy trekking. The terrain was quite mountainous. Rough, jagged peaks with steep ravines covered in thick forest, and the weather was terrible. Lashing wind and rain that was building up to a storm. When the Germans launched their attack, they came from all sides, blocking off any escape route and releasing a hail of spears. The Romans were fairly unprepared for the attack and must have struggled to get together into any kind of military formation, especially since they were strung out in a long line, perhaps eight kilometres long. Varus was later sharply criticised for not maintaining sufficient order and war readiness as he marched, and it is certainly easy to say this is hindsight. The first obvious targets for German spears were the horses. The wounded and panicked animals would have been impossible to control and even thrown off some of their riders. The Romans did manage to fight back with some success at first and forced the Germans to retreat and so were able to set up a makeshift camp for the night without terrible loss. Behind some hastily constructed defences, Varus and his fellow commanders debated whether to fortify their position further or try to fight their way out. They came to the conclusion that they had too few provisions to survive very long and opted to try to flee the next day. As a sign of how serious Varus took the situation, the next morning he ordered all unnecessary equipment to be burned in order not to load them down, nor leave them for the Germans to take. Perhaps this was a mistake, and they should have allowed the enemy to distract themselves in plunder and win time for the attempted escape. Anyhow, the Romans then cautiously left their camp and began their march west. Along the way, the Germans harried them all the way, firing arrows from the cover of the woods. The exact location of the events is unknown and made more difficult to determine by being spread out across several kilometres. But now the key attack is thought to have taken place around a hill called the Kalkariza Berg. Here, recent excavations have revealed numerous finds consistent with a large-scale battle. Weapons, armour, all types of military equipment and personal belongings of Romans, as well as coins which are dated to shortly before AD 9. One particular item found was a bell stuffed with local straw, interesting for two reasons. Firstly, it shows how the Romans were trying to reduce any noise they made as they went. Secondly, the grass can be identified as being cut in September, consistent with the time of year the battle is known to have taken place. Another discovery was a series of turf walls and sand ramparts that curved with the shape of the hill. To date, the total length of the walls discovered is 400 metres. They were built by Arminius and his people to hide behind and provide some defence when they launched the next major ambush and also managed to narrow the path, guiding the Romans into the dampest and most difficult part of the pass. It was here that the worst of the fighting took place and the greatest Roman casualties occurred. The Germans leapt out through the gaps they had left in the walls and started massacring the Romans. In the face of such an assault, the Romans were unable to use to their advantage the tactics they used so well in more formal battles. The constant heavy rain hindered the heavier armed Romans, while the lighter armoured Germans used their better knowledge of the local terrain to their advantage. 
Our most detailed account of the battle is by the Roman historian Cassius Dio, who wrote 200 years later. He describes how the Romans, quote, defended themselves against their assailants, but suffered their heaviest losses while doing so. For since they had to form their lines in a narrow space, in order that the cavalry and infantry together might run down the enemy, they collided frequently with one another and with the trees, end quote. Another recent find was the skeleton of a mule. By the position in which it was found, it looks as if the poor animal had panicked and tried to climb the walls built by the Germans, but had fallen down and broke its neck. Great numbers of Roman soldiers' remains were also found along the hill. Indeed, Cassius Dio says that it was the second day when Rome suffered its heaviest casualties. The discovery of some bodies behind the walls suggests that some legionaries went on the offensive, scrambling over the top to get at their attackers. Certainly the earth rampart began to collapse even during the battle. The evidence suggests that the Romans were now divided, but the main body led by Varus managed to survive the second day and continue trekking west or northwest in a desperate attempt to escape back to Gaul. Cassius Dio says nothing about the next day, so whatever happened is guesswork. Perhaps no major confrontation occurred. Perhaps the Germans continued to harry the Romans. Cassius Dio continues, The Romans, quote, were still advancing when the fourth day dawned, and again a heavy downpour and violent winds assailed them, preventing them from going forward, and even from standing securely, and moreover depriving them of the use of their weapons for they could not handle their bows or their javelins with any success, nor for that matter their shields, which were thoroughly soaked. Their opponents, on the other hand, being for the most part lightly equipped and able to approach and retire freely, suffered less from the storm. Furthermore, the enemy's forces had greatly increased, as many of those who had at first wavered joined them, largely in the hopes of plunder, unless they could easily encircle and strike down the Romans, whose ranks were now thinned, many having perished in the earlier fighting. Varus, therefore, and all the more prominent officers, fearing that they would be either captured alive or be killed by their bitterest foes, for they had already been wounded, made bold to do a thing that was terrible yet unavoidable. They took their own lives. This was the Roman way, to prefer death than the shame of being captured. Any Roman soldier who gave in to the enemy was disinherited by the state, their citizens' rights void and their belongings confiscated. The Germans must have celebrated as they plundered the Roman treasures, including the eagle standards that symbolised so much to their foe. Another war trophy, the head of Varus, was sent by Arminius as a gift to King Marbod of the Marcomanni tribe, whom Arminius hoped to coax into an alliance but Marbod declined the offer and sent the head on to Rome for burial. As for the captured Roman officers, the Roman historian Tacitus reports that the victorious Germanic tribes tortured and sacrificed them to the gods on their altars. In a seemingly coordinated action, whilst this was happening, the newly established Roman settlements in Germania were also attacked. The archaeological evidence backs this up, suggesting they were all abandoned from around AD 9. The imperial biographer Suetonius described the reaction when news of the disaster reached Rome. 
Emperor Augustus, upon hearing the news, tore his clothes, refused to cut his hair for months, and for years afterwards, was heard upon occasion to moan, Quintilius Varus, give me back my legions. In response, he ordered the drafting of a new military unit, and two years later sent Tiberius back to Germania to avenge the massacre, and tried to re-establish Roman control. He was soon after replaced by the son of Drusus, Germanicus, who waged a successful campaign in Germany. In 16 AD, he inflicted a heavy defeat on an army, led by Armenius, in an engagement often known as the Battle of the Vesa River. Germanicus showed good leadership, and appeared to have learned from the lessons of the past. Many Germans were slaughtered with only minor Roman losses, although Armenius managed to escape. The discovery by Drusus of the battlefield of the Battle of Teutoburg Forest is described by Tacitus. Quote, In the centre of the field were the whitening bones of men as they had fled, or stood their ground, strewn everywhere or piled in heaps. Near lay fragments of weapons and limbs of horses, and also human heads, prominently nailed to trunks of trees. In the adjacent groves were the barbarous altars, on which they had immolated tribunes and first-ranked centurions. And so the Roman army, now on the spot six years after the disaster, in grief and anger, began to bury the bones of the three legions, not a soldier knowing whether he was interring the relics of a relative or a stranger, but looking on all as kinsfolk and of their own blood, while their wrath rose higher than ever against the foe. Germanicus also managed to salvage some Roman pride by the recovery of two of the three lost legions' eagles. However, once Arminius's Germanic coalition had been broken and honour avenged, the now Emperor Tiberius ordered the Roman forces to halt the offensive and recalled Germanicus to Rome for reassignment to a new command. Once the Germans were no longer under direct threat, Arminius began to lose influence and in AD 21 he was murdered by rivals within his own tribe, who felt he was becoming too powerful. What was the significance of the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest? The historian Edward Creasy included the battle in his 1852 work, Fifteen Decisive Battles of the World, on the basis that it was pivotal in blocking the expansion of the Roman Empire. The German historian and Nobel Prize-winger Theodor Mumsen regarded it as a turning point in Germany's national destiny. Since the time of the rediscovery of Roman sources in the 15th century, the battle formed an integral part of the mythology of German nationalism. Part of this was the construction of the monument dedicated to Arminius described in the introduction to this podcast. However, it is now known this monument is in the wrong place, not located by the actual battlefield. Also since the end of World War II, there has been a strong aversion in Germany to celebrating the nation's militaristic past. Therefore, the commemoration of the recent passing of the battle's 2000th anniversary was rather subdued. Some scholars have begun to question the significance of the battle and have pointed out reasons why the Rhine was a practical boundary for the Roman Empire. The historian Peter Heather, in his book The Fall of the Roman Empire, described it as one huge fluke victory, but not the underlying reason for halting Roman advance. Northern Germania was far less developed than the Rhine region, 
possessed fewer villages and had little food surplus, and so less capacity for tribute. To counter this argument, it should be said that the conquest of new lands was considered a great achievement by Romans, and so there was personal incentive for the emperor or leading generals to want to go down in history as conquerors of new lands. This is often described as the motivation for the invasion of Britain shortly afterwards by the Emperor Claudius, a region with probably no more capacity for tribute than Germany. What's more, Germania was already well on its way to Romanization. Varus's mistake was trying to rule the land as, it, as if it had already been subdued, perhaps understandable, given his previous experience was governing already pacified provinces. I personally believe that if the Romans had met less effective military resistance, then they would have occupied Germany up to perhaps the River Elbe. But to use modern speak, when they carried out a risk-benefit analysis, they decided that the great cost and risk of keeping the Roman army operating beyond the Rhine was not considered worth the benefit to be gained. From the reign of Tiberius, the border between the Roman and German worlds stayed constant until the 5th century, when the Roman Empire started to decline. In the time between, the Romans greatly influenced the development of the Rhine region. It can't be coincidence that southern Germany is today predominantly Roman Catholic, one in the north and mainly Protestants. Despite this setback, the Roman Empire continued to dominate the Mediterranean, including southern Europe, for the following centuries. Its next greatest challenge would come in the 3rd century, when under attack from the resurgent Persian Empire. The Roman response was hindered by a series of civil wars, fought for the title of emperor. One of these wars would have a particularly important impact on the culture of Europe. Its victor, Constantine the Great, was the first Christian emperor of Rome, and his promotion of Christianity transformed it from being a minority sect of the poor into the state religion. Please join me in three weeks' time for the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. If you'd like to leave any feedback or comments on this podcast, please leave them on the website www.historyeurope.net. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.